Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. In January of 2020, we witnessed an attack on our capital by American citizens. At the time, many of us said that we didn't think it could happen here, but it did happen. And it was just one event on a timeline of events that has our guest, and should have each of us, concerned about the future of our country. This week, I'm joined by Barbara F. Walter. Barbara is a professor of international relations at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego, a life member of the Council of Foreign Relations and author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, which is now available. The rigid refusal by lawmakers to compromise underscores the disturbing findings of one study on democracy in the U.S. According to a Washington Post editorial, data from the Center for Systemic Peace finds the U.S. no longer technically qualifies as a democracy. Steve Bannon, Donald Trump's former chief strategist, remember him? Well, he is now urging conservatives to prepare for controlling... The United States government. The men accused of plotting to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer discussed kidnapping someone else as well, the governor of Virginia. Hi, my name's Barbara Walter, and I'm an expert on civil wars, political violence, and domestic terrorism. And if there's one thing I know, it's that not talking about hard things doesn't make them go away. Sorry, not sorry. Barbara, I want to get into your book, How Civil Wars Start. But before we do, tell my listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm actually the child of immigrants. My mom came to New York City from Switzerland. My dad came separately to New York City from Germany, and they met there. And I grew up in a household that talked a lot about what was happening in the world. My parents were lifelong Republicans. I grew up with a Reagan calendar in the kitchen every year until basically George Bush came to power. And then my parents started to feel a little uncomfortable. And by the time Donald Trump was nominated, they were no longer Republicans. And I've had a kind of an interesting career. I started in my career in advertising in New York City. I worked for two major advertising agencies, and then I decided I wanted to go to grad school. And since grad school, I've basically been a researcher writing books, 
consulting for the U.S. government, working for the CIA on this task force that I talk about in the book, doing actually a fair amount of consulting with the Department of Defense and Central Command. All of that work was focused on what was happening outside the United States. So I would be the go-to person to talk about what was likely to happen in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Yemen. And so this book is really my first foray into American politics. And it really came from my work on civil wars outside the United States, and especially on my work for the CIA on this task force, where we tried to predict which countries around the world were likely to experience political instability and political violence. And of course, the things I was seeing there, I started seeing here in the United States. And that's when I started writing really fast. That is all fascinating. And I love how you said you weren't prepared to answer that question. You did a really good job. So you've spent, it's fair to say, decades studying civil wars. And I think my question is, like, how have you seen them change? How are they different today than they were in the past? There's two big trends that we're seeing. One of them I don't really talk about in the book, but we are living in what I call an age of civil wars. There are more civil wars going on in the world today than at probably any time in history. There were almost no civil wars in the 1800s. And in fact, you know, serious data on civil wars was only collected for the most part after World War II. But if you were to look at a graph of the number of civil wars, Since 1946, the graph would start here. And every year, pretty much the number of civil wars around the world increased. It initially peaked in 1992. We thought that was going to be the height of civil wars. And then we had this decade where lots of civil wars started to get resolved. There were lots of negotiated settlements. This is when Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, Cambodia, Angola, these wars, they ended after many years and sometimes decades. And those of us who study civil wars celebrated this. Things are finally turning in the other direction. And then it reversed in about 2002, 2003. And we started to see the number of civil wars increasing again. And we have now surpassed 1992. And it doesn't appear as if the trend is going to reverse anytime soon. So yeah, we're living in this age of civil wars. And then the second trend is that in terms of civil wars, we're starting to see a different type of civil war. One that's fought by sometimes hundreds of factions. I think most people, when they think of civil war, they think of two big armies meeting each other on a battlefield Each of them are wearing uniforms. It's organized. There's a commander on each side. And that's really not the type of 21st century civil war that we're now seeing. It's more an insurgency where you have lots of militias and paramilitary groups, oftentimes on both sides. And sometimes they work together to fight a common enemy. If you're the rebels, you're fighting the government. But sometimes they're actually competing and fighting against each other. And if you think about Syria, the Syrian civil war had hundreds of factions fighting on both sides. ISIS was fighting against the Syrian government, but there was other factions fighting against the Syrian government, and they were also fighting against ISIS. So it's this messy decentralized type of war. And the tactics are very different. These groups don't want to tend to want to engage government forces. They 
pursue terrorism, they're targeting civilians, they're targeting buildings, they're targeting infrastructure. And it's more a form of guerrilla warfare than engaging government forces. This is the aftermath of a brutal raid by the military on a village in central Myanmar. The bodies of six men were found in Nagatwin. They were the ones who couldn't run. Three were elderly. Two had a mental health condition. Some had their hands tied, as well as ropes around their necks. This man's body showed signs of torture. His widow says he stayed to look after their animals. This man was rounded up in the same group. He was shot and beaten, but managed to escape by pretending to be dead. And it makes sense. If you're trying to take on the U.S. government, you want to avoid the U.S. military because there is no way you're going to defeat them by engaging them directly. I was actually in Angola two years after the peace treaty was signed with UNICEF. I've never experienced anything like it in my entire life. I mean, there was absolutely zero infrastructure. It was really eye-opening. I went with the Angel Trust Fund and we excavated landmines literally with a spoon like a kitchen spoon, like a tablespoon, on our bellies, taking dirt off. It was incredibly eye-opening. And it was my first trip as a UNICEF ambassador, and they just threw me right into the fire. You mentioned before that tactics are very different. But it seems, and what you write about, is that many of the Civil Wars start in an eerily similar way. So how, how so? So they tend to have similar underlying conditions, and we can talk about that later if you like. But those underlying conditions could last for a long time. They could last for five years, 10 years, 30 years. And so one of the questions that I try to answer in the book is what sparks it? These underlying conditions are pretty stable, and they put you at risk of war, but they don't throw you over the edge. What throws you over the edge? And I write about it as a loss of hope. And the way to think about it is that most people don't want war, obviously. People want to avoid war. If they're unhappy with the current system, they would prefer to get to to change it, to get reforms or to get what they want without having to fight. And so unhappy groups, think about Catholics in Northern Ireland or, or think about Palestinians in Israel. If they could get better representation in government without fighting, if they could get that by working within the system, That's what they'll do. And so you will see groups almost always engage in these other forms of political change. So they'll protest or they'll go to the polls and they'll try to increase their turnout so that they can get the votes to get their representatives in power. So they'll try all of these things. And it's when all of those normal political channels get shut down, that's when they lose hope. And that's when you know, there's always extremists in every society. That's when the voices of the extremists resonate more and more. And that's when you start to see average citizens, or at least the ones that are more sympathetic to the more extreme goals, average citizens start to say, maybe 
they're right. Maybe the system can't be fixed. Maybe the only way that we can get what we want is through violence. And that's when you start to see violence happening. It's funny that you mentioned hope because I literally, of all my travels, and I've been to the, all over the Middle East months after the war was declared over, I'm doing quotation marks for my listeners. And the thing to me that was the through line in all of these areas that were so devastated, all these children had such openness and so much hope. And it didn't matter what the territory was. When you were with a child, there was literally like even almost more so than the kids here in the United States. But there was this like openness of I, I'm not sad. I know you think I should be sad, but I'm not sad. And this innate ability to hope. And that was an incredible lesson to learn. And think about every morning when we get up out of bed. Like there is this feeling today could be a good day or yesterday sucked, but today's could be better. I think we underestimate how important that sense is that the future, that there is some possibility that the future is going to be brighter, better, safer. And when that's gone, because you have 10 different pieces of evidence that show that, no, it's not getting better. The Catholics in Northern Ireland, they peacefully protested for decades. They modeled their protests after Martin Luther King and the civil rights, the peaceful civil rights movement. They did everything that they thought was the right thing to do. And they got nowhere. They were still shut out of jobs. They were still shut out of housing. They were still grossly underrepresented in government. This is a conflict that is built on identity and historical memory as much as anything. Take the year 1916 to, to the unionist and loyalist community. That's the year that the Ulster Division made its sacrifices at the Battle of the Somme. To the Republican nationalist communities, 1916 is the year of the Easter Rising of the attempt to throw off British rule. Same year, people perhaps living a couple of miles away will have different reasons to commemorate it, just as a kind of an example of, of what we're talking about here. These things build into an identity. And then when they're marching, the Protestant hierarchy brings in British soldiers and the British soldiers start shooting at them. And think about that. The next morning when you get up and you've realized not only have we not succeeded by doing what we thought was the right thing, but now the British government is going house to house and dragging our men, throwing them in jail. There is no hope in this system anymore. And that actually, that is when you suddenly saw women and your average Catholics turn to the IRA and say, okay, we support you. What's an anocracy? <laughs> I almost didn't put anocracy, that word in the book, because I was like, it's a weird word. Nobody's heard of anocracy. And it turns out to be the word that has really resonated with people. Anocracy is simply a fancy term for a government that's neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. It's something in between. And I think the reason it resonated with so many people is because they've always thought that the world has two different types of governments. It's pretty simple. You've got democracies, and you've got dictatorships or authoritarian governments. And I think what that means is if you're a democracy and it's declining, like here in the United States, our democracy has been getting weaker over the last five years, that you're not too worried. This doesn't scare you too much. You think, OK, this is OK, because we are really far 
from being a North Korea or an Iran or Saudi Arabia. Because if there's only democracy and dictatorship, we're really far from that. And I think why anocracy resonated is not only because they now realize there's this middle zone that you could be something in between, but that much of the bad stuff, much of the instability and the political violence happens in this middle zone. Your democracy is weakening. You're heading towards the middle zone. And that's where a lot of trouble can happen. Full democracies almost never experience civil war. Full autocracies almost never experience civil war. The civil wars happen in the middle. Can you explain the polity index to our listeners? So for five years, I served on a task force that's run by the CIA. It's called the Political Instability Task Force. You can Google it. It has a Wikipedia page. I didn't have a security clearance. Everything that we talked about in the meetings that I was invited to was open source and unclassified. And the goal of the task force still to this day is to analyze countries outside the United States and try to figure out which ones are likely to kind of unravel and experience violence. And the task force created this predictive model. And to create the model, we included lots and lots of factors, over 30 factors. We included whether a country was poor or rich, whether there was a, you know, heavy income inequality or not, whether there was lots of ethnic diversity or whether it was essentially an ethnically homogeneous country over 30 different types of variables that we thought would be really important. And only two, two came out highly predictive. And that surprised everybody. We did not expect this. And we did not expect the two that turned out to be really important to be the important ones. And both of them actually came from data collected by this nonprofit located in Virginia. It's called the Center for Systemic Peace. And the Center for Systemic Peace, every year, it evaluates every country in the world and it gives it, let's call it, a, it's called a polity score, but it's really how democratic or autocratic that country is. Every year, it gives that country a score and it gives it a score between negative 10 and positive 10. Negative 10 means that you are the most autocratic country in the world. And there are not a lot of countries like this. That's where North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain are negative 10. You do not want to be a negative 10. On the other side of the scale at plus 10 are the most democratic countries. This is where you find Denmark and Iceland and Switzerland and Canada, very democratic. The U.S. was a plus 10 for much of its history, and it was a plus 10 until 2016 when it got a lower score. I think one of the things that really surprised me in reading your book was that moving from authoritarianism towards democracy was often a predictor of civil war. Why is that? Yeah. So it turns out that transitions to democracy, especially really fast transitions, are highly destabilizing. And earlier in, in the show, I talked about how during essentially during the 20th century, more and more civil wars were starting. 21st century was a century of the rise of civil wars, peaking initially in 1992. The 21st century was also the century of democratization. 
The Taliban says it will, after days of delays, announce its new government this week. One of its many challenges will be preventing an economic collapse. But the movement still doesn't control the entire country. There are reports of fierce fighting in the Panjshir Valley, where the National Resistance Front is holding out. The fear is Afghanistan could once again be plunged into civil war. There were very few democracies around 1900. The vast majority of countries were not democratic. And today, a majority of countries are. And so the rise of civil wars went hand in hand with the rise of democratization. And people are just like, democratization must be good. And if you can get to full democracy, if you can get from negative 10 to positive 10, that's great. That's great. Germany and Japan did that after World War II. That's fantastic. But it almost never happens. You almost never leapfrog over this middle zone. You tend to go through this middle zone. And when you're in the middle zone, it really means that you have a government that still is pretty repressive, that isn't fully open. And so citizens of those governments are they're still unhappy. They're like, yeah, you're democratizing, but I still don't have a lot of freedoms. Or we get to go and vote in elections, but the outcome is preordained. So we don't really have a say there. Or, you know, we vote for somebody, but once our new president is office, he or she can basically do what they want to do. And so they're still unhappy. But those governments also, they've let go of some of their repressive arm. So they don't crack down as heavily on organizers. They're not watching dissidents and throwing them into jail as frequently. And so it's easier to organize in these countries with these anocracies. So the anocracies are vulnerable. They're weaker generally than autocracies, and they're less effective in terms of serving their population than democracies. So you have unhappy people who suddenly actually can organize. And this is exactly what happened in Iraq after the U.S. went in and toppled Saddam Hussein. I don't know if you're interested in talking about that, but that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. That was going to be my next question. So, yes, tell us a bit about what happened in Iraq and also what could the United States and the coalition it built have done differently to achieve a better outcome in Iraq? So the U.S. went into Iraq in in 2003 for, for lots of different reasons. One of the reasons that was given by the Bush administration was that Saddam Hussein either had weapons of mass destruction or he was going to try to get weapons of mass destruction no matter what. One of the reasons they also gave was that this was going to be the U.S.'s chance to bring democracy to the Iraqi people and and create a second democracy after Israel in the Middle East. And that sounds like a really positive, hopeful goal. And when the U.S. went in and threw Saddam Hussein out of power, they honored this goal. They rapidly created a government that had many democratic elements. They had elections. They set up democratic institutions. 
And what happened was what happens in, in many countries that try to make this transition really quickly. They didn't get all the way to positive 10. They didn't have a mature democracy with mature institutions. They didn't have citizens who were used to democracy and and knew that it was important for them to be engaged and to be involved and to protest. And they didn't have institutions that they could count on, a judiciary they could count on. Everything was brand new. And instead, what happened is you had this transition government and then this new democratic government that everybody realized was weak. It wasn't really serving the people, didn't have the capacity to serve the people. And then what ambitious individuals around the country did was realize, ha, we were not able to try to grab power when Saddam Hussein was in Baghdad because he would shut everything down. But if we want power, now is the time for us to organize and to move. And there was a sort of power vacuum that quickly all of these competing groups in society tried to fill. The U.S. made two really terrible mistakes. And to this day, I don't understand why they did it, because we did not make these mistakes in Germany and Japan. When we also went in, we had two governments that had completely collapsed. And our goal was to bring democracy to those countries. We did something very different than we did in Iraq. You know, Brennan, I don't know if he's responsible or I don't know who gave him the order to do this, but two decisions were made that the Iraqi military was going to be disbanded, that soldiers were going to be sent home and there would be no military at the center. And the second one was that if you had been a member of the Ba'ath Party, which is Saddam Hussein's party, that you were immediately fired and there was a law that you could not be rehired in any capacity. Now, that wouldn't be a terrible thing if the Ba'ath Party was really small and it only included Saddam Hussein's inner circle, but it included civil servants, it included healthcare workers, it included teachers, it included a vast swath of the population that was required to run a country. So when they're fired and there's a law saying that they cannot be rehired in any capacity, you suddenly have hundreds of thousands of people who have no hope. There's no hope. They are now permanently unemployed. They cannot take care of their families. And you also have hundreds of thousands of decommissioned soldiers who are also sitting at home. They have guns. They know how to use them. They also have no hope that they will ever be functioning members of this particular government. And so it created this situation where you had people who were easily recruited into rebel groups, into militias to basically ensure that democracy and this new government would fail. Yeah, it doesn't seem like we had the best planning. And I'm so confused as to like how things get to that point. In my head, the way our government works is there's people that are specialists in all of these fields that sort of implement, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to do this. And I'm still amazed at even how we've tried to tackle this pandemic, the same thing. It seems like in my head, they have the power, they have the intelligence, they have the understanding of what needs to happen in order to, whether it be to transition a government to a democracy or get rid of a pandemic. 
And it seems like it's still hard to do. And I'm constantly amazed at the inability to get things right. It's incredibly frustrating as an outsider looking in. And I want to shift a little bit to the U.S. And I think this is a good segue. You open your book describing the kidnapping and murder plot against my dear friend Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. The alleged plot nightmarish. Earlier today, Attorney General Dana Nessel was joined by officials from the Department of Justice and the FBI to announce state and federal charges against 13 members of two militia groups who are preparing to kidnap and possibly kill me. The FBI and state police seen here raiding a home and detaining an individual took action after the men met this week to exchange tactical gear and to pool their money to allegedly buy explosives. The mission attack the governor before election day. And you write that you were alarmed, but not surprised, and that it fits into a pattern. What's that pattern you're seeing here in the United States? Outsiders looking in think that when civil wars erupt, they just suddenly explode. And what they're not seeing is that the The path is being set years beforehand behind the scenes. It often takes decades and it often takes a handful of individuals. Sometimes it's students. One of the civil wars in Ethiopia was organized by a group of four students who met in university in Addis Ababa and they would meet in cafes and they would talk about what they didn't like about the authoritarian regime and how they were going to change it. So this is not unusual where you have people who are who have with radical ideas, who are more passionate about a particular outcome, and they start talking about, okay, how do we, how can we get rid of the current government or how can we get a better government? But they're more radical than the average citizen. So their challenge is like, how do they recruit additional people to their cause? And I've been watching the United States for the last five years. I've been looking at the data that we have on the rise of far-right militias. I've been looking at videos that show them training, and they're training in almost every state. They're training in the woods of Michigan, but they're also training along the border now in Arizona with Mexico. So I've been watching these groups as they increase in number, as they gain more experience, I've gone to Facebook. I've seen the number of Facebook pages exploding. This is all apparent if you're looking for it. But if you're not looking for it, which is most Americans, where most Americans are, you don't see it. And so when the plot to kidnap Governor Whitmer came out, I was like, this was bound to happen. They've been organizing. They've been talking about this. And Michigan has one of the highest numbers of militias in the country. That's always been a hotbed of militia activity. And so I was like, okay, it's not a surprise that this eventually happened. And it's not a surprise that it happened in Michigan. Why do they have more militias than other places? That's a good question. I think one of the reasons has to do with demographics, which is a a really important theme, not only in the book, but in terms of where you tend to see civil wars. Michigan is a deeply divided state. You know, one of the two most important predictors of civil wars is whether a population begins to divide itself politically, not around ideas like communism or capitalism but around identity. So political parties 
form based on ethnicity, religion, or race. And that has happened here in the United States. And it's especially problematic if it also divides geographically. And if you look at the demographics in Michigan, you have cities in Michigan, think about Detroit or Grand Rapids that are a majority non-white. And you have the rural areas in Michigan that are almost entirely white. So you have this big divide And you also have a population that's fairly evenly divided. So whites, I don't know exactly what the exact percentage is, but whites and non-whites in in Michigan are essentially competing over who's going to be the majority. And so when we think about presidential elections, it's never really clear which way Michigan's going to go because there is still this contest over, okay, is it going to go essentially Black or is it going to go white? And that makes for combustible politics because the stakes are really high. I want to add to that and maybe ask you, could it also have something to do with the car manufacturing industry pulling out of the state, leaving so many people jobless? And we, again, like we when we were talking about Iraq, we had no plan to train people for the changing economy. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because We know actually who tends to start civil wars, especially ethnically based civil wars. There's been over 200 civil wars since 1946 around the world. And if you look at who tends to initiate the violence, it's not who you think it is. It's not the poorest groups in society. It's not the groups that are most heavily discriminated against. It's certainly not the immigrants. Those are tend to be really weak disempowered groups, they can't, even if they wanted to organize, they wouldn't be able to do it. The groups that tend to start these wars are the groups that had once been dominant in a country or in a region, but are facing decline. The list of cases we just ran through there, Kyle Rittenhouse, Ahmed Arbery's killers, and the Charlottesville rally have another glaring thing in common. The defendants in those cases are all white men. And it's important that we acknowledge that because while black and brown people can absolutely display toxic forms of masculinity, society doesn't typically afford them the same leeway that white men get. Tamir Rice was 12 years old when he was killed for playing with a toy gun, not a real gun. Kyle Rittenhouse was 17 years old when he killed people with a real gun. And he's become a hero on the far right because of that. And that's not a coincidence. In an opinion piece for NBC News, Isaac Bailey writes, the truth is that too many white Americans probably see themselves in Rittenhouse, afraid of anyone, whether white or of color, who wants to live in a more equitable country. Either they know they're about to lose power because demographics are changing or they've already lost power. And that is the situation here in the United States. We're in the midst of this great transformation that people only really became aware of around 2014. In 2014, there was a census that showed that a majority of babies born in the United States were non-white. And this census terrified a subset of the white population. And you actually saw a lot of militias beginning to form after that. This realization that, oh my gosh, even if we halt all immigration, even if we build a wall around the entire United States and nobody is allowed to come in, we will still transition 
to a white minority regime because of the birth rate. Do you remember 2017, the Charlottesville rally? They were chanting here. They were all of these alt-right groups. They came together. They had torches. And one of the things they were chanting was, we will not be replaced. We will not be replaced. It's the birth rate. It's the birth rate. And it was this realization that whites were going to lose their dominant position. And historically, when that happens, that's when, again, the extreme elements of a group begin to gain leverage because they're saying, listen, we work in the system, we're going to lose. And so violence is justified in this case. And violence is especially justified because it's our country and it's our right to take it back. Now, you brought up the economics of this, that, you know, what's really striking about Michigan is that this was a state that really was hurt badly by globalization. When globalization happened in manufacturing jobs, and these were good union blue collar jobs where people could live a good middle class life if they had one of these jobs, those disappeared. And certain states were hurt disproportionately, and Michigan was one of them. We know from the research looking at other groups that start civil wars, losing political power is the worst. That tends to motivate them more than anything else. If they don't have the votes to get elected, they start to organize. But if they're losing politically and they also experience an economic crisis where they're losing economically, so where they are looking at new groups migrating into their territory who are doing better, who are getting better jobs, who are getting higher salaries, that that compounds itself and it makes those groups even more likely to become violent. What does the January 6th attack mean for our country? I think the January 6th attack was a gift to the United States. When it was happening, people were calling me and emailing. They're just like, are you watching this? Oh, my God, what do you think? And the biggest emotion I had was relief. I was relieved. I was also relieved that the police response was muted, was almost non-existent. And I'll tell you why in a second, but I was relieved that, that January 6th happened because up until then, people like me and JJ McNabb and all these people who study civil wars and who've been tracking the rise of violent extremists on the far right here in the United States, we'd been sounding the alarm. We'd been writing about this. We've been talking about it. I gave a speech in 2017 about it. And people weren't receptive. People couldn't believe that this was possible. And we were essentially ignored. And what January 6th did, it was just the most obvious public display of a cancer that had been growing in the country away from people's eyes, suddenly bursting onto the scene. And it made it impossible for American citizens and for our leaders to ignore or deny that this was happening. So 
it was a great gift because had that not happened, they would have been able to continue to grow and to recruit and to train. And really, there would have been nothing to stop them. And at least now we have the FBI, we now have a... um, we're now paying more attention and we're not treating domestic terrorism as if it's not a problem. I mean, but aren't a lot of leaders in the Republican Party denying that it even happened or the severity of it? In the very chamber where the insurrection took place, dozens of Senate Republicans voted to block an independent commission to investigate the January 6th attack. The motion is not agreed to. The bill failed 54 to 35 six votes short of the necessary 60. Despite GOP leadership's encouragement to defeat the legislation, six Republicans joined Democrats in supporting it, including Bill Cassidy, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Rob Portman, Mitt Romney, and Ben Sass. with Senator Pat Toomey saying he would have as well had he been present. Democrats on the Hill slamming their GOP colleagues for derailing the inquiry. This vote has made it official. Donald Trump's big lie has now fully enveloped the Republican Party. And doesn't that breed more division if we're not all on the same page? And do you think we will find ourselves in a civil war because of the lack of unity in our leadership? I think there's time that we are not on the precipice of civil war. We are in a situation where the U.S. has the two conditions that we know that put countries at high risk of civil war. But so on the task force, if a country had these two features, if it, had, if it was an anocracy, and if it had political parties that were based on ethnicity or race or religion, we put them on a watch list. It was actually called the watch list. And we gave it to, I don't know, somebody in government, probably in the White House, and they watched the country to see what was happening. The U.S., would have been put on this watch list by the end of 2020. And if you're on the watch list, we know that you have about a 4% annual risk of civil war. That seems like it's very small, but it's actually not. Because every year that you continue to have those two conditions, your risk increases 4 to 8, 12. So after 30 years, for example, your risk is over 100%. So if you don't change, if you don't reform your system, if the Republican Party doesn't widen its tent to be more inclusive of more Americans, then eventually we will have civil war. But there's time and we know how you can change this. The problem is, and this gets to the Republican leadership and the big lie that they're perpetrating, The problem is that the Republican Party doesn't want to reform our democracy. They actually want to push us further towards autocracy and deeper into the middle zone. And the reason they don't want to reform our democracy is they can't win in a democracy that's one person, one vote. They don't have the votes. And so they have to, if they don't want to widen their tent, they don't want to include people beyond white Christians, then the only way that they can maintain power is to unravel our democracy, which is exactly what they're doing. And they can't unravel our democracy by telling Republican voters, we're going to actually destroy American democracy because most Republicans love America and they're proud of our democracy and they wouldn't agree with that. 
So what they're doing is they're creating this narrative that elections are being stolen from them, that our democracy is illegitimate, that our democracy somehow is not functioning, and therefore we we need to improve it. It's this kind of vast narrative designed to allow Republican elites to cement in minority rule with the support of average Republicans, many of whom don't even know that this is what they're doing. It feels like the last two minutes of what you have been talking about is really heavy. And I would encourage my listeners, if they like zoned out at any point, maybe just rewind the last Go back last two, three minutes and really listen to what Barbara has just said, because if that is not terrifying and does not propel you into action, my listeners, I don't know what will. And so how do we stop it? What can we do to climb out of this danger zone, especially when, you know, we're not passing voting protection? There's different things we can do, but I'll tell a story of one country that was in worse shape than the U.S. and avoided civil war. And that was South Africa in the 1980s and the early 1990s. When we used to talk about, okay, what country around the world is most likely to experience civil war? We would say South Africa for sure is barreling towards a civil war. You had a white minority apartheid regime that in the face of increasing peaceful protests, not only by African men, but by women and school children and everybody, despite being a pariah in the international community and economic sanctions, they doubled down on apartheid and repression. Some of your listeners will probably remember what happened in Soweto, which was a Black neighborhood where 100 school children came out and they were protesting in the street And the government sent in soldiers and mowed them down. We had video of this. How brazen, how brazen can you be that you think that you can murder children on video and get away with it? But that's where they were. And then they shifted. And suddenly they kicked out Botha, who is a hardened racist. And they brought in de Klerk. De Klerk was a member of the apartheid regime, but he came into power and he was told, Okay, reform. We are handing power over to the Black majority. And Nelson Mandela was released from prison. And very quickly, you had this transition. And you're just like, how did this happen? Why would these tried and true apartheidists, why would they change? And it's not that they had a crisis that they suddenly became moral. It's partly because the white business community eventually said enough. Good morning. Welcome to this special TV1 newscast. White South Africans are flocking to the polls today in one of the country's most historic referendums, a referendum which will decide the future of South Africa. We have reports on the latest developments at some of the polling stations. Voting began briskly in Pretoria this morning. Queues formed at all the polling booths before voting began at 7 o'clock. There was a lively atmosphere at a school in Arcadia, where President F.W. de Klerk and his wife Marika brought out their votes. A smiling Mr. de Klerk told the Board of International Newsmen that he was optimistic about the result. The white business community also didn't have suddenly feel like they needed to do the moral thing. The white business community was suffering every year under the weight of economic sanctions. 
And the economic sanctions were essentially strangling their businesses. And by early the early 1990s, the white business community had to make a choice between profits or apartheid. And they picked profits. And they told the white apartheid regime that they were not going to support this anymore. And once the white politicians lost the support of the white business community, they knew the game was over. And so I think in some ways that's a that's a lesson for the United States, that the business community actually could play a role in forcing our politicians to reform. And that hasn't really been done yet. And I think it will be hard for people like Mitch McConnell to continue on this path, this anti-democratic path, if campaign financing dried up. It's very different because we have so many lobbyists that, you know, because of capitalism, there's so much greed. There's so much greed that goes on. And I don't know what the equivalence is to the white businesses in South Africa. Is it our tech industry? Is it going to take tech to stand up? Like who who stands up? Because it's not going to be the lobbyists or the companies that are actually benefiting from this chaos and from this lack of democracy, right? I mean, major corporations don't even want to pay taxes so that we can send our kids to a public school or they don't even want to pass gun legislation that 90% of the, our country believes in because of gun manufacturers and gun lobbyists. And we don't have a Nelson Mandela. What will it take? And also, I don't know that we have the foresight to actually make the transition into a full democracy, which obviously we're not there because we're so divided. Like South Africa had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We can't even agree that there's systemic racism in this country. Yeah, Alyssa, change is going to have to come from us, you, me, average citizens. One of the things that we also know from a huge amount of fantastic research is the power of peaceful protest. There's a person at the Kennedy School at Harvard, Erica Chenoweth. If you haven't met her and talked to her, bring her on your show. She spent her whole life studying how effective peaceful protest is and the nuts and bolts of how people power, how you and I and everybody else going out into the street with nothing but placards and voicing our demands, how effective that can be. And that's something that we saw in the 1960s. The African-American community was incredibly effective at doing that. Like who would have thought that African-Americans could, through peaceful protests, become fully enfranchised citizens, that we would have massive reform. But it worked. And think about the Arab Spring. The countries of North Africa and the Middle East were some of the most authoritarian countries in the world. Mubarak in Egypt had been in power for decades. There was no reason for him ever to reform. And it only took a few weeks of mass protests for him to leave power. So I think people underestimate the power of moms and dads and kids going out into the street and holding their politicians accountable and demanding, for example, an end to voter ID laws or demanding campaign finance reform and calling out what politicians are doing in D.C. rather than allowing them to continue as if business as usual. I was arrested this year in front of the White House demanding that 
Congress does something about the Freedom to Vote Act. So I understand the power of peaceful protest, but I do think that technology has changed so much of this because people can send out a tweet or black out their profile picture, and to them, that's protest. When you can do it seemingly, when you think you can do it from your home, it's really hard to get people in the streets. And it's also, I have to say, because so many people are struggling because of gas prices, because of just trying to make ends, they're getting food on the table for their kids. To try to get them to care about democracy is really difficult. So you sound optimistic. I don't feel as optimistic as you are. (laughs) But I want to know, this is how I always end my interviews, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is that three years ago, we would not be having this conversation, Alyssa, because people would have thought that we're alarmists, that there's nothing to worry about, that everything's going to be okay. And we're having this conversation today and people are listening to it and they're thinking about it. And I get hundreds of emails every day asking, what can I do about it? I feel that something's wrong. I'm worried for this country. And I think the very first step that we we need that the very first step that needs to happen for change to occur is we actually have to acknowledge that there's a problem and we're doing that now. The problem is really, really difficult. Republicans don't want to reform and Democrats don't have the votes to reform. So it's not going to come from the top down, which means it's going to have to come from the bottom up. And this means that it's going to be grassroots organizations and local organizations and churches and neighborhood groups that are going to have to come together and and rebuild our civic ties and to have Americans once again take back the power, the political power that they've been kind of complacent about because they haven't had to worry about this country. But they're worried now, which means that maybe they will take action. And that's why I'm optimistic. Well, Barbara F. Walter, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. Well, Nicole, we are entering a very dangerous phase. And over the next 33 days, what's not on the ballot is merely a choice between Republicans or Democrats or Trump or Biden. Actually, what's on the ballot is a choice between democracy or whether or not we're going to revert to some Russian form of dictatorship or autocracy where our democracy is undermined. It's long been an ambition of Putin. It's long been an ambition of Russian state propaganda to show the world that American democracy doesn't work, that actually the people can't elect their representatives and that this peaceful transfer of power cannot occur. And that, of course, is used to justify Putin staying in office for 10, 12, 16 years, which is exactly the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump is now talking about on the stand saying, I'm going to stay in office for 16 years years and his effort make no mistake is to is to undermine the ability of the american voter to have confidence in our democracy he wants people to stay home he wants his white supremacist gangs to come out so violence if necessary to prevent people from going to the polls under the guise of poll watching and he wants to suppress the vote you guys it can happen here it is happening here it's terrifying We have a heavily armed nation deeply divided by race, wealth, and ideology. One side of that divide has already engaged in violence against our country, 
and the instigator of that violence is now making noises about running for re-election, not in service to our nation, but in a personal power grab from which I fear we will never recover if it happens. We need to stop it, and we need to stop it now. If there are any Republicans left who have a shred of decency and patriotism, they have to end it. They have to reject the weak, cowardly men who enabled January 6th, and they have to shut down the people who would take up that mantle. If they don't, I worry that there will be no America in just a few years. The backsliding toward authoritarianism has to end. The suppression of the free vote has to end. The full-on assault on our democracy by one party has to end. If it doesn't, our country surely will. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. <laughs>